Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this morning we come to the end of our current study of this book, the book of 1 Peter. We began on the first Sunday of February of this year, and we conclude on the first Sunday of October, eight months later. So we spent eight months in what Peter himself, in verse 12, says is a relatively brief book. So I have one question for you. Why would we do that? (laughs) Well, uh, these five chapters are short. They take about 12 to 15 minutes to read through from start to finish. And we spent eight months pouring over this this portion of Scripture. And I want to deal with that question in a minute. But let's pray for our teachability to this closing passage in this portion of God's Word. And also, as is our custom, let's pray for our peace officers and our firefighters and our active military. And uh, Ken Wanzer, if you would, lead us in prayer, okay? Thank you, Ken. Uh, you know, one of the themes in First Peter is is patience and humility. And we've talked about humility a lot here in the last portion of this. And uh, one guy in our church who's very, very humble is my main man, Ron Miller. And I, I always love this picture. This is a picture of Ron in Puebla at one of the mission trips several years ago now. But uh, he's got a beautiful heart. And so to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking before we look at this last passage in First Peter, five amazing facts about the most humble elder at TBO. And these are facts he will never tell you about unless you ever get a chance to actually talk to him. So you, otherwise you would not know these things. Uh, Ron Miller has built snowmen in August at the equator using rainwater. I didn't say these were necessarily funny. I just said they're profound and thought-provoking. Ron Miller sleeps with a pillow under his gun. Ron Miller once bowled a perfect game. That's 300. Using a marble. That's not easy. Ron Miller has counted to infinity three different times. And finally, hold your applause Ron Miller has written the largest diary in history. It is also known as the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> okay, why, why, yeah. So we got why, what, and wow. Thank you, Steve. Uh, yeah, why in the world would we spend eight months in the life of our beloved TBF to read through, wrestle with, and reflect upon the truths of this relatively brief book? I think the answer to that is what First Peter is. First Peter, Lori, is the first of two books that the Apostle Paul composed and recorded, composed and recorded, guided by direct, unique intervention of God. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. Such that this book is timeless, nomic scripture. It's the word of God written. It's authoritative, it's indispensable, and it especially is indispensable to help believers think about and process facing uh, pain and trauma of intense and unfair suffering. So this is why we spent a lot of time on this book. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we see the 
condition, the situation, the Sitzenleben of the original readers. Uh, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, par epidemois, in the original, uh, they are uh, not just, they're refugees. They're, have been forced to leave their families uh, of origin, their homes, their cultures, their jobs, their pensions, which was in and around Syria, and to go into what we would call is northern and western Turkey. So Chris, they've left their jobs, they've left their trucks, they've left their toolboxes, they've had to leave everything to get away from the bad guys, from persecution, and from death, and now they reside as aliens, as refugees. So he's talking to people who've lost everything in their physical, uh, relational lives, but they still have their connection with the Lord, and he's urging them to hang in there. And if you go to the purpose statement of the book here, Jason, look at chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. He tells you, and, and it's not unusual for biblical authors to structure their material like this, kind of a build to the main thing they're saying and then work away from it again. But you actually see his purpose statement, his thesis statement, you might call it, kind of in the middle of the book, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Uh, and that directs everything else he says about living our faith under, faith under fire. And he says, as par epidemois, as spiritual aliens in this world and short timers on earth, you only live a little bit. You only live a hundred years if you're 120 if you're Moses. And that's not very long in the grand scheme of things in the flow of history. As spiritual aliens and short timers on earth, if you're a believer in Christ, you shouldn't be controlled by your emotional patterns or your feelings. They should be appreciators, not initiators. But we should consistently Live our faith centered on Jesus Christ, not on uh, the president of the United States or the pastor or the worship leader or whether or not um, you like your boss this week or whatever is going on. Your faith needs to be centered on the one you've trusted for eternal life so that that stability that will result of all that will cause at least some unbelievers who slander us because we are believers in Christ to see his reality in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. And I've said that's his kind of rhetorical purpose for writing the book, but I think what he wants you to walk away from the book saying is, hey, Carol Wanzer is supposed to trust and obey the Lord now as TDY, that's military uh, acronym for temporary duty exiles on earth, encouraged by a joyous anticipation of being at home with our risen Savior for all eternity and with those who have gone before us, like Bill Dickinson and Rick Buchanan and uh, uh, Bill Shelton and uh, uh, Grandma McCoy, people like that. So the bottom line, I think, of the book is keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. And in this relatively short book, he gives a very concise case as to how we can do that and why we should do that. Now today, as we finish the book in verses 10 through 14, we're going to see a concluding truth that we must keep in mind, especially in our worst times of trial and tribulation, and then we'll see Peter's personal uh, farewell. But let's look at uh, verses 10 and 11 here and see this concluding truth he's emphasizing and depending on how your study Bible brackets things, you may see something different. But if I was bracketing it, I would bracket 10 and 11 as separate from the body of the book because I think he's summarizing everything he's been trying to say. 
It doesn't just relate to the last paragraph, but the whole book as a whole. And he says, hey, as you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, realize that after you've suffered for a little while, and that little while might be a hundred years on the earth, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So that's saying, Natalie, cancer, crisis, and even ISIS can't take your eternal connection with God away from you. The bad guys may run you out of Syria into Turkey. They may arrest you. They may put you in concentration camps in North Korea. But they can't take away your eternal connection with God because God himself, not the North Koreans, they can't take it away from you, will perfect, confirm, and strengthen, establish you when you go from this mortal coil to being absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, to Him now and forever be dominion forever and ever. Notice that little statement, a little while. I love that. After you suffered for a little while. Now that may sound familiar, especially if you've read through the book as many times as Steve has. That should sound familiar, right, Steve? Hold your place. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6. In fact, Peter, as a skillful author, is kind of ending where he started. And if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it's necessary for everybody, you've been distressed by various trials. Now, first thing we've got to do in verse 6 is, and Mike, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. So what does that mean? Uh, we'll go back to verse 3. This is what he's talking about. Blessed be, I realize you guys have left, left your jobs and your cultures and your pensions back in Syria, but blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again. We've got a life that will transcend our funeral to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance which the bad guys can't take away, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved, not in a bank box, but in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God. Salvation is not probation. Through faith, for an aspect of your salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in your spiritual standing, in your uh, secure future, for all eternity, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, You've been distressed. So look at that on the uh, visual aid here. In our eternal standing, we rejoice even though now, par par epidemos, they're facing intense unfair suffering. For a little while, you've been distressed, if necessary, by trials. Then we get to the end of the book, and he says, after you suffered for a little while. That's not a mistake. He's kind of ending, connecting the arc of the book by going back at the end where he started. Um, even though uh, now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect you. Cancer, crisis, and even ISIS can't stop that. And so even if you live to be 120 years old, and I know I'm going to live to be 120 years old because when I turned 60, my wife said, Brad, you're going to live to be 120. I said, how do you know that? Because you look half dead right now. So, yeah, sure. I'm not sure Jason had heard that before, but everybody else here has heard it multiple times. I used to say 50, and now I'm saying 60, and I'll soon be saying 70 and stuff like that. But here's the thing. 
this is a, a gravestone for somebody I, I don't think anybody of us any of us knows. Hopefully, it won't bring up bad memories. But when Peter says after a little while, he's talking about that. That's a little while. Even if you live to be like Moses, 120, it's just a dash on your tombstone, right? And that's why the gospel is so important. I keep hearing people should know better saying the first century church was so exciting to people, it was irresistible. It wasn't the church that was irresistible. It was Jesus that was irresistible. It wasn't the local church that was irresistible. They didn't look like much back then. They met usually out in the woods somewhere so the bad guys couldn't arrest them. It was the gospel that was so irresistible. It wasn't the church. We're going to design churches unbelievers are going to love. Why? Casino night? Beer bus? What are we going to do? I mean, are we that desperate? we got the message here. Everybody's here for a little while, then they die. That little while is going to look like that on your gravestone. we got this to offer. Let's say God has this to offer, and we get to share the good news. So it's amazing how we uh, kind of are Americanizing Christianity, but nobody seems to notice. But here's the problem. We're only here for a little while. Every single human being, regardless of color, country, culture, or financial uh, status, bears the spiritual image of God. It's been marred by our sin, but not eradicated. And that is part and parcel why we have an immortal soul that will transcend our funeral. And in that sphere, every single human being will experience eternity, either in a domain of blessing in direct fellowship with God, His righteous, holy love, or in a domain of punishment, banished from that connection with God because they didn't want it when they were down here. And that the interface between the reality of the little while that's now and us longing for that eternal connection leads everybody to ask themselves consciously or unconsciously three burning questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going after a little while when I die, when I'm no longer alive on this earth? And the gospel is the only answer to that question. It has the advantage of being true, but it's the only fulfilling answer that philosophy, religion, or scientism has come up with. Because the grace of God means unmerited favor. You don't earn it or deserve it. And the merits of the person and work of Jesus Christ, human beings, no matter how bad they've been or how good they've tried to be, can have a no-so salvation that answers all those questions. Here's the basis of the answers to those questions. John 3.16, God loved the world so much as the author of the plan of salvation, God the Father. He gave his son, the active agent of the plan of salvation, that whosoever in the Greek text has an, uh, has an article and a present active participle, it doesn't say that whosoever, but it says all of the ones who believe, 100% of those who believe, meaning white people, black people, rich people, poor people, uh, immoral people like the terrorists on the cross who broke all ten commandments and probably on a bad day broke all ten of them at once, you know, um, or Nicodemus, the most righteous guy in Judaism who desperately needed a savior because he couldn't save himself. Um, Romans 5, 6, I know that's one of Ron's favorite verses. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ still died for us. And one of my favorite ones is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, uh, 
he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, Jesus who experienced no sin, he did not sin at all, even though he lived in a sinful domain, he made him who knew no sin to become a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in him. So the answer the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ the salvation of God isn't like the salvation manufactured by the world religions where you have to kind of crank out a certain amount of karma or a certain amount of good works or a certain amount of submission to Allah or whatever the religion system teaches you. Salvation, according to the God who created the universe, is of his making. It involves his work. He's the Savior. We're the saviors. It's not something we do for God. It's something God does for us. And God initiates this no-so salvation as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need as we truly seek God. And our need revolves around sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, we've got it. I know that's a nasty word. I know that sounds like hate speech today. But sin just means not only do you break God's standards, at your worst you break your own. And everybody here can say that, and I'd be the first one to raise both hands on that one. Sin, righteousness, you need it, and you can't crank it out, no matter how religious you are or how much you try. And judgment, you're going to have a one-to-one reckoning with your creator uh, when everybody else is at your funeral, if not before, and you got to deal with it. So the Holy Spirit works to help people sense their need for the gospel, and then he opens our eyes to believe. And the scripture says that the gospel is the good news, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, And he rose again. He died as a substitute for your sin debt and my sin debt. And then he rose again. If you're looking for life after death, wouldn't it make sense to look to the one who passed through death and came out the other side, Kylene? Wouldn't that make more sense than looking at Buddha? And you can go see part of, you can go to a pagoda where part of his collarbone is in Chiang Mai, Thailand. I've been there. Okay. But when you go to the tomb in the garden tomb in Jerusalem, There are no collarbone fragments. There are no fragments because he was supernaturally bodily resurrected to validate his saving work on the cross and to validate he's the source uh, of eternal life for all who believe in him. Uh, Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace, grace is unmerited favor. You don't earn this. You don't deserve it. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. Is that good? For by grace are you saved through faith in Christ, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When we trust Christ for salvation, we're offering nothing to him. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. But he's not just giving you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's giving you a whole new capacity and ability to serve him. But all that good stuff that comes out of your salvation isn't the cause. It's an effect. It's not the root. It's the fruit. Uh, the essence of the gospel boils down to this, because Christ died for our sins on the cross, we don't have to die in our sins. It's up to you. You can die in your sins, but you don't have to. And because he validated the saving work on the cross through his resurrection, we must understand and believe and throw us ourselves on the mercy, as it were, as we trust in him, that the risen Christ is the issue and the issuer, the only issuer of eternal life. Uh, a verse I don't hear anybody quoting, but this is the essence of how you receive Christ based on all we've said.
But to the one who does not work, it's not about walking an aisle or signing a card or promising something, although you can do those things and still trust Christ. And that helps us to see that and keep our records and stuff like that. But, But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly based on his death and resurrection, his, the ungodly person who hasn't done any work for this, um, but comes with empty hands and trust in Christ, his faith or her faith, is Nancy as much as Scott, is reckoned before God as righteousness. And so that's our invitation this week and every week. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation, or Jesus, I'm a sinner, it's my fault, I can't fix it, you can, and I want you to. I believe you died for my sins and rose again, and I receive you as my personal Savior And then you might say, Lord, I love you. Thank you. I want to serve you. Help me to start listening more closely to Pastor Brad so I can do things that you want me to do. And I'll be glad to help you at that point. Okay. So Peter's writing this book to believers. This is not an evangelistic tract. It's written to help believers hang in there, that holy hanging in there. You know, Carla, we talk about tying that knot on the end of your rope and holding on. He's helping them to try to think about this. And it ain't easy, but it is doable. So after you've suffered for a little while as someone who has received the risen Savior, so you know your eternity is secure, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you from that instant where your soul goes from, where your body goes zero, you know, your EEG, your EKZ goes zero, and your soul is instantaneously in the blessed presence of Jesus, and I think this, even at your worst moment as a Christian, that's what we're going to tend to think about probably, I think he's going to be extremely happy to see you, and my my theory is I'm going to look at him and then die for the feet, and after I hug him, hug his feet, hopefully he'll dust me off and show me Grandma McCoy and Bill Dickinson and a few people like that, and we'll start looking around. Um, it's interesting, we talked about um, verse 11, to him be dominion forever. Right now, it makes a good sense for believers to submit to his dominion because uh, he's the one who saved us. That's the motivation. But if you look at the far right side of that chart of God's program for history, he's going to establish his dominion. And we're, we're going to get to the best of all possible worlds. This is not the best of all possible worlds right now. One less abortion, one less rape, you got a much better world. Uh, um, this is the best possible world achievable with creatures making life choices, moral choices, but the best of all possible worlds will be a whole new universe uh, where evil will have been permitted, defeated, quarantined, and all who've wanted to have a connection with God through Christ will enjoy the uh, the, the glories of a, a whole new universe beyond our ability to even try to comprehend. But it's interesting that when you look at verse 10, after you suffer for a little while, the God of all Grace who called you when you trusted Christ to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and uh, confirm, strengthen, establish you. Theologians talk about the three aspects of salvation, the three tenses of salvation. You've got, uh, if you're a believer, and I was saved at age nine many years ago, so if you're a believer uh, standing here as a Christian, I have been saved from the penalty of sin through my faith in Christ by the grace of God. I'm being saved from the power of sin. Now, some of you have said, it's hard to tell, Brad. Well, the Holy Spirit and my wife are working on that. But that's that's this process. That's called sanctification. And then 
The third aspect of salvation is sometimes called glorification, future tense salvation. At death or the rapture, we will be saved from the very presence of sin and will no longer be able to sin. And if you realize, uh, it's fun to realize that in verse 10, you have all three of those tenses involved there. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you, that's past tense salvation when you, if you're a Christian, when you first believe. Um, after you suffered for a little while, that's present tense where we're being, uh, sanctified and he'll himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish us. That's future tense salvation where we'll be saved from the presence of sin and no longer even able to sin at all. So we looked at the concluding truth there, which is essential to hold on to, that we're only suffering for a little while, and neither uh, crisis or cancer or ISIS can keep uh, our salvation, eternal salvation from happening, our inheritance in heaven kind of thing. Now let's look at the, Peter's personal farewell in verses 12 through 14. Uh, Theo our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this, what I've said in this book, the content of this book, is the true grace of God. It's the word of God written. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, uh, talking about a church somewhere, we'll tell you in a minute what I think that is, sends you greeting, greetings, and so does my son Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's the Mark who wrote the um, second gospel, sometimes called Peter's gospel, because obviously Mark's gospel has been uh, the content, went through Peter's filter, through his apostle, through his apostolic best friend, Mark, and Mark wrote it down on expression later. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Let's talk about that one uh, in a minute. So hold on to your hats there. That'll be the exciting finish of this. Uh, peace to all who are in Christ. Okay. Um, Silvanus is the fancy form for Silas. Silas is, the, is his nickname. And most commentators are pretty convinced that Sylvan, Silvanus here, or Silas, is the same guy who worked with Paul during the second missionary journey. So there's not a lot of proof for that. Uh, this was a fairly common name, so it's not. That's not. I wouldn't pound the pulpit on that. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's not correct. But either way, notice he says, it's kind of odd, James, for him to say, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother. It'd be like if I was writing a letter about James's ministry and uh, say to somebody, to an elder or something, and say, well, you know, through James, we're going to have uh, worship this Sunday, and he's our faithful brother, or at least I regard him as a faithful brother. You know, if you, why would you say that? You know what, as somebody who's been a Christian for a long time and a pastor for a long time too, I found out many years ago that somebody doesn't like everything. When somebody says, well, I don't like something. Well, you know, welcome welcome to the world. You know, somebody doesn't like everything. The fact that you don't like something doesn't necessarily mean anything to me except you're the one that doesn't like it. You know, and you might have a point and you might not. Somebody doesn't like Everything and somebody doesn't like everybody. You can always find somebody who doesn't like somebody. And I could be wrong. I'm not going to pound the pulpit on this either. But using my pastorly intuition, I think somebody between Rome, Babylon is code speak for, for Rome, and uh, northern Turkey, and that's where the letter's going. And I think Sylvanus was probably the mailman who took the letter but almost certainly was the scribe who wrote it down. Peter was dictating it, 
and the Holy Spirit has to do with the um, not just the um, composition, but the recording of Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit, you know, superintended that. And we have other examples of that in Scripture. But somebody, maybe a pastor, because it's always the pastor's fault, right? Somebody between Rome and northern Turkey, where the letter's going, doesn't like Silas, doesn't like Silvanus. And that maybe it was a personality conflict or some kind of disagreement, but the guy can't let go, the criticizer. And so Peter's aware that somewhere along the line, and this letter probably would have been read at the churches all the way along the way between Rome and the original recipients because of what it was, the way Peter emphasizes the authority of it. But somewhere along the, along the line, he's going to bump into some Christians who've heard that Silvanus is a bad guy. And Peter's just saying, uh, it's easy to slander people, easy to second guess people, but what's being said about Silas isn't legit, isn't correct, and I totally vouch for him. And I think that's why he's giving that concession. Through, through Silas, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, or so I regard him, he's probably delivering the letter, He's almost certainly the guy who actually wrote it down as Peter dictated it. I've written to you. He's a faithful brother. For so I regard him, meaning you may hear some rumors to the contrary, but don't buy him. And so don't be surprised, you know, if you hear crazy things about people that aren't necessarily true. Uh, I, and through him, I've written to you briefly. Look at that. So he, he admits this is a short book. He could go longer, you know. Now, some of you realize that I, I'm capable of preaching for a long time, but I could always go longer, Abby. says so even on the longest one, I could go longer. So I'm always showing mercy on you at some level, so just be aware of that. Um, but he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and testifying that this, the content of this book, is the true grace of God. It's written scripture, so stand firm in it. Boom. Um, you hear people say today that... Uh, you know, these the apostles wrote stuff, and other people wrote stuff in the first century, and then the second century, and then at certain councils, church councils, the, the most important one was the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., that a bunch of eggheads in the early fourth century got together, and they looked at 127 different documents and said, let's pick those 27 there, because they fit our agenda. Like the early church in the fourth century, after surviving 300 years of persecution, just kind of invented a New Testament. And then that was later confirmed by another council at the end of the 4th century, Council of Carthage. That's not what happened. Those guys didn't make anything scripture. They just formally recognized the books that had always been recognized as scripture as opposed to uh, devotional literature that was never considered to be scripture and or competing counterfeit documents that were floating around with the ink still wet. So the church did not create the New Testament in the 4th century the New Testament, and we mean the events of the life of Jesus Christ, as recorded in the New Testament, right? The events, events of the life of Christ created the church centuries before those councils. Why did we not have church councils to the 4th century? Because we were illegal until the 4th century. The Roman Empire w- would burn any church building you try to build. You couldn't get all the eggheads together to ruminate about theology because they'd all be executed in the next day by the Romans. So you're going to hear that out there. And as uh, uh, Mike Gundy said about Bobby Reed many years ago, it ain't true, you know. But Bart Ehrman will be on the History Channel telling you that. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. 
Uh, inspiration and preservation of Scripture is at, at play here. The inspiration of Scripture is the idea and the truth that God the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors of the Scripture so that they composed and recorded without error the exact message God wanted as timeless Scripture in the words of the original manuscripts. Um, and here the process involves Peter dictating to Silvanus, who physically writes the words down. So that's what I would call a class A miracle, and that only happens 66 times in history because you got 66 books in the Bible. Then you've got a class B miracle um, that's preservation of Scripture. You don't have a printing press until 1450. So prior to Gutenberg, 1450 CE, you've got men or women writing stuff down. That's called manuscripts. Manuscripts are documents that are written down by a person. And anytime you do that, you're going to tend to get some discrepancies. And you're going to hear there's a huge number of discrepancies. And there are between the New Testament manuscripts because there are so many. You've only got like 15 documents of the Gallic Wars uh, by Caesar. We've got over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Nothing else is like that. And so you do get some differences. But let me show you an example of a difference. Uh, Despite the differences between the 5,000 manuscript copies we've got, 98% of the text is absolutely identical. In the the 2% area, maybe 1.8% where there are discrepancies, this would be the kind of example you get. Look back at verse 10. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Anybody got the King James, New King James, or a version that says, in Christ Jesus, instead of in Christ, anybody out there? Nobody? Why not? Nobody? You do. Is that, is, does it say Christ Jesus? Okay. So the question is, does it say, is he talking about uh, the grace of God uh, who called us through eternal glory in Christ? Or is, did, did, is that what Peter wrote or Sylvanus wrote down as Peter dictated? Or does it say in Christ Jesus? You know what? That's a difference. That's a discrepancy. But does it have any significant meaning difference? Is there any doubt? Da- it does. In other words, you don't have manuscripts that say, um, after you suffer a little while, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Satan. You, you don't have like half the manuscripts say that and half say Christ, or in Paul, or in the Pope, or in the Southern Baptist Convention, or Dallas Theological Seminary, or TBI. It doesn't say that. You've got some of the manuscripts say in Christ, some say in Christ Jesus. Is there any significant difference between that? No, that's the kind of thing you get. It's just crazy the way the differences that do come up never affect any major doctrine at all. Um, and the pattern you tend to get is uh, we've got some very early manuscripts that are called Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus from the late 2nd, early 3rd centuries, complete New Testament manuscripts, beautiful, looks like Xerox copies, uh, that will say one thing, and then the manuscripts affected by those. And then you've got other geographically distributed manuscripts that are dated later that will say the other. And in this case, the earliest manuscripts that are most certainly in most cases the, the closest to the original, in this case they have in Christ. And But the vast majority of manuscripts that are later and distributed differently geographically say in Christ Jesus, and there is no significant difference between that kind of thing. So that's what you get. It's not exactly a Xerox machine over the 5,000 manuscripts, but it's effectively, at a pragmatic level, 
as good as a Xerox machine. So you can stand firm in this, and you don't have to doubt that God, who who inspired his word, has preserved it. And uh, it's really pretty cool when you do that. It's called textual criticism. They teach you how to do that at Dallas Seminary. And it doesn't affect um, anything uh, as far as major doctrines or morals or anything that we actually uh, believe as Christians. But again, the New Testament created the church, not the other way around. Okay. Uh, notice it says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as is my son Mark. She there is a... is is a personalization of the church in Rome. The word church in the Greek, iglesia, is a feminine noun, and it's not unusual to speak of things of beauty and distinction uh, in, a, in a feminine form. The reason he refers to Babylon, now there was a, a literal Babylon in Iraq, what we call to Iraq today, but in the first century it was a small little insignificant village. It had lost all of its glory because of military defeats. It would later be built up. Um, quite a bit in subsequent history. But in first century, there's no evidence that Peter got anywhere near Babylon. But what he's doing is, because of the persecution in the church, they would actually, and we found secular material where Christians in the early uh, church era would refer to Rome as Babylon because Babylon was an early persecutor of the Jewish people, and now Rome had kind of taken up the baton of Babylon. So, um, I'm, I'm quite sure that that is code speak for, for Rome. And he's re- saying the church here in Rome where I'm writing from uh, sends you greetings as does my spiritual son, not his physical son, Mark. And John Mark's the guy that worked with uh, Paul, first missionary journey, halfway through the journey, quit and went back home, and then later hooked up with uh, Paul and Peter. And here in about 64 A.D., we've got uh, Mark, I mean, uh, Mark being vouched for by uh, Peter, just like he vouches for Silvanus there in verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, um, in when I was in, in Amman the first time teaching there, I think I've told this story several times, but uh, the day before I left to come back home, my American counterpart told me, uh, tomorrow morning when you say goodbye to all the other faculty members, most of whom were Arabs, he said, you're going to find which ones really liked you and respect you. Because don't be surprised, but they're going to get out of their desk and they shake your hand. They're going to hug you and kiss you on both cheeks. And I, I'm glad he warned me about that because about slightly less than half of them did that. So at least half, about half of them actually liked me, you know. And the other ones just kind of said, you know, have a nice trip, you know. But they do that over there to this day. And in the ancient Near East, same-sex non-romantic kissing on the cheek was the way you patted people on the back or shook their hand to acknowledge them to you know, confirm them, to encourage them. And so that was a culturally understood convention then. Uh, some people, to this day, some churches wouldn'tly apply that. And so when you come in, you know, if we have like Danny and Olga passing out the, uh, it might be harder to get handout chairman if we did that, but I mean, there are some churches that read that and say, okay, Scripture says that, so we got to do it. Uh, but I would say, uh, I think that would be, Easily misunderstood, okay? You know, if I gave Zane a big old smooch every time he came to church, you know, somebody might see that and not understand that. Uh, and I think you use a culturally uh, relevant equivalent to do that. And so I would say, you know, let's shake each other's hands or pat each other on the back. Although so many of us 
me and Dale are getting older and we have bad backs, so don't hit us too hard on the back, okay? I mean, just kind of maybe just pat us a little bit because we're kind of fragile in our old age here. Ken, can you rec- can you can I get an amen on that? I mean, you know, we love you, man, but we're not going to hit you too hard on the back. We don't want to hurt you. But uh, to me, you know, um, I don't think it's necessary uh, to to uh, in order to follow that injunction to physically codify the culturally. Uh, recognized way in the first century to greet people, and then you got to do that for the rest of your life. I think that he's saying here, just recognize each other, be happy to pretend like you're happy to see each other. I think it's basically what he's saying, you know. And the sooner you learn how to fake that, the better the church will do. You know, that's, that's all I can say. Then he says, um, "Peace be to um, you all who are in Christ." And I love this. He's he's you know wanting them to experience the eye of the hurricane as they continue to live out uh, their lives in this crisis. They're trying to figure out. There's a big difference, though, between peace with God and the peace of God, right? Peace with God is something God gives you the moment you trust Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's a, a legal standing on your first day as a Christian, your last day as a Christian, on your worst day as a Christian, on your best day as a Christian. You have peace with God because of the grace of God that saves you. The peace of God is a stability of mind. It's a tranquility and I call it the eye of the hurricane. And we have good friends from Florida here today, but they live in the panhandle, so you guys dodge the, the latest ones. Yeah, it's a good idea about living near Baghdad. They actually live near Baghdad. Not Iraq, but Baghdad, Florida, which is where, uh, um, who's a left-handed golfer? Uh, help me. Bubba, Bubba Watson, you know, grew up around Baghdad. That's why I know about Baghdad. Not that I know him personally, but I've read it in golf magazine or whatever, but the peace of God is what Philippians 4 talks about, you know, uh, it's what 1 Peter 4.19 talks about. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, Pam Cox, uh, Linda Keeney, um, Carla Buchanan, Brad McCoy, uh, entrust their souls, their, their whole selves, to, the, to a faithful God and doing much right. You know, I'm just going to re- doubt my doubts. I'm going to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even though there may not be any reason I can think of why God would permit this thing to happen to me right now. So, uh, interesting, I attached to that third page of your little handout there, the insert into the bulletin, the fact that uh, on the very first week of the study back in February 5th of this year, we kind of surveyed the book, and you'll see basically I think everything we've seen in the book lines up with that pretty nicely. Uh, when our faith is under fire, believers should refocus our Christian hope, which is looking forward to that which has been promised us, to eagerly anticipate our future, because we're temporary duty here, and it's important, but it's not ultimate. And we're waiting PCS, to use military jargon, permanent change of station. So we ought to live with a holy lust to serve, not second-guess God, despite the hardships we're going to face, and we all face them. And then the overall application is keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. Um, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, we'll do a couple of uh, uh, standalone messages. I'm going to talk about rapture ready. Did you hear about the guy who predicted the end of the world last Saturday? And last Saturday uh, uh, night, our electricity went off at home. So when we woke up last Sunday morning, not this morning, but last Sunday morning, our electricity was out which isn't the end of the world, but I thought, well, maybe the guy meant our electricity was going to go out. Because he got that right. 
But even though Jesus says, don't set dates, we're, we have all these people. Harold Camping's the most famous one lately that set these dates. But we're going to try to make you rapture ready without setting dates or paying any attention to those who do. So that's what we're going to try to do, Lord willing, next Sunday. Unless the rapture happens before next Sunday, and then we, will, we won't have services, which I'm voting for that. I'm definitely ready for that. Um, and then in, in two weeks, we'll look at Isaiah 53, um, how we got that text and what that text says. And it's the neatest Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, I think, in the whole Old Testament. It will blow your socks off if you're not familiar with that. And then we'll do a couple other special things, and then we'll eventually go to a study of Second Peter. So we're moving towards Second Peter to kind of uh, complement what we've just seen in First Peter. Okay. And again, we'll close in prayer now, but remember, if you can stay, please do. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll start in about 15 minutes after the closing prayer. Whoops. And uh, that's the highest form of New Testament worship, and it's very important. So please stay if you can for that. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this book of First Peter that uh, a lot of us have admitted we kind of skip over. You know, we, we read things around it, but we often don't read First Peter. And it's very, very important for us to know these truths. And we thank you for giving us your word, preserving your word, translating it, and illuminating it so we can understand it, believe it, and apply it. And it all starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And help us to train ourselves, Father, literally to just put our sufferings as significant and as important and as real as they are, we don't deny them, against the background of the cross and the resurrection to shrink them down so we can really rest in you as we do what we can to deal with these kind of issues. And we've all faced them. And we also know that we've got a responsibility to pray for one another and encourage one another and to help other people carry their burdens. And so, although you're you're going to be at work in the midst of that, and you want us to have the eye of the hurricane phenomenon, we do have some responsibilities to one another. And it's not just an automatic thing. It involves, you know, our responsibility in making right choices and and uh, standing firm in the faith. So help us to have the grace to do that, we pray. And as we go to the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, um, Lord, just fill us place with your spirit in a dynamic way so we can really reconnect with the one who saved us, to be abiding in him and glorifying you as we enter this highest, most sacred form of New Testament worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.